John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. And if you look carefully, you'll see that we are back in Cana of Galilee for the second sign in the book, paired very deliberately with the first sign that started this whole section off. So this will be a good passage to put down the book with for the summer. Let's enjoy what Jesus has to say, and then we'll pick it up again in a few months' time. John chapter 4 and verse 43. After the two days, that is the two days that Jesus lingered with the Samaritans, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his homeland. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he'd made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was a royal official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you lot see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son lived. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. Well, friends, how solid is the thing your faith rests on? Because this morning we have good, good news for the superficial. I take it that all of us here have some interest in Jesus or we wouldn't be here, but how much weight could that interest in Christ bear? If you were to give your Christian convictions a slot on television, would they take the prime time Or would they fit better on STV, somewhere between Loose Women and Love Island? I doubt many of us would like to think of our faith in terms that superficial. And yet, how many of us have friends who were on fire for the gospel 10, 15, 20 years ago and are nowhere at all today? They grew up in a culture where it never really cost them to take Jesus at his words. And as the culture around them changed and taking Christ at his word began to bite, the fire slowly went out. It is a reality of the Christian life that we just have to reckon with honestly. There is a kind of Christian faith that turns out to be very superficial. When you need it most to hold you fast, it breaks under the strain. 
Maybe some of us live with a nagging worry that it's us in that camp. One day, will I find out that I've been a daytime TV kind of Christian all along with a superficial faith based on something that just isn't strong enough to bear the weight? Well, with those thoughts in the back of our mind, I wonder if you notice what an intriguing little passage it is that closes this great chapter of John's gospel. What kind of savior is the Jesus John is introducing us to here? He's intriguing. He has left prestigious Jerusalem, not in response to failure, but because his opposition was beginning to hear about his wild success. And then for two of his days and three of our Sundays, he lingered in the no man's land of Samaria, the last place on earth a prestigious rabbi would want to be seen. And yet there again, he was wonderfully honored and welcomed by the Samaritans. They begged him to stay with them, abide with them, verse 40. And for two days, he did exactly that in his grace until they, the Samaritans, acknowledged what nobody else has seen so far. This indeed is the savior of the world, even people like us. And with that, verse 43, Jesus departs back to his homelands, back into Jewish territory and the region of Galilee where he grew up. In other words, he has walked away from success and honor and needy people to a place, verse 44, where he himself has already testified that there is no honor to be had. What sort of savior behaves like that? The commentaries all start to flood the engines over verse 44 because it's so hard to make sense of that word for. The assumption is that like any of us would be, Jesus must be chasing honor And so this doesn't seem like a reason, does it, to head to Galilee where nobody's going to be interested. Then we get an even stranger puzzle, verse 45, because having testified that a prophet is without honor in his hometown, Jesus arrives in Galilee to a warm, excited, enthusiastic welcome. What's going on? Maybe he got it wrong. But if Jesus was wrong, then what? on earth are we to make of that so at the start of this verse? And then the puzzle continues, verse 48. Jesus, the miracle maker, the savior of the world, the one who came to share the love of heaven, is faced with a desperate father pleading for his son's life. And yet his reply is so harsh, isn't it? It's a rebuke. Unless you lot see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And then perhaps the biggest mystery of them all comes right at the end. Jesus does heal the boy. We knew he would. And John tells us this is now the second sign that Jesus did, the second big set-piece miracle which John has organized his book around. So there we go. We've got John's famous evidence for anyone who wants it that this man is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we can all see and believe and have life in his name, except who sees it? Well, nobody. Nobody in the narrative, at least. 
Jesus does it in a way that is remote and low-key and tucked away, which, if you've been reading carefully, you'll remember is exactly what he did with sign number one. Nobody saw the water turned into wine except his mother and a few slaves. Nobody believed because of that miracle except for his disciples. So what sort of sign isn't meant to be looked at? What sort of savior of the world does his very best work hidden away in secret? It's a puzzling little story, isn't it? And yet that puzzle is telling us something wonderful about Jesus and his grace. The kind of savior who behaves like this is someone willing to save even the superficial. People who are only interested in him for what he can do and not who he is. And yet his grace stretches even that far. He is the savior of the superficial, the only savior of the superficial. And yet he's not willing to accept superficial faith. All the way through this last section of the chapter, he is pushing us, challenging us to put our faith in something trustworthy and life-giving and secure. So often in the Bible, when Jesus surprises us or he isn't what we'd expect, there is treasure to be had by looking closely. So we're going to look at this puzzle under two halves this morning, the strangest so in the Bible and the kindest no in the Bible. And we'll focus on what they are teaching us about Jesus himself and his incredible grace. First then, verses 43 to 48, the strangest so in the Bible. And it is telling us something glorious. When mankind is at its most superficial and selfish, Jesus gives himself. Either that's so at the start of verse 43, sorry, verse 45, either that is a bizarre contradiction of the verse right before it, or it's telling us that this welcome is actually exactly what he expected. And if we read on to the end of the verse, it's very clear that that is what's going on. It turns out that people in Galilee are just like people in Jerusalem. In fact, many of them are the same people who were there in Jerusalem. They welcomed him because they'd seen the amazing signs he did back at the feast. And it's as if John is deliberately reminding us of Jesus' assessment back then. Turn back in your Bibles to chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Let's remember what happened at the feast. John says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem, verse 23, at the Passover feast, Many trusted in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Wonderful, we think. But verse 24, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's a kind of faith that is deeply impressed with Jesus' miracles and yet it doesn't seem to impress Jesus at all. 
In fact, he is deeply skeptical about it, isn't he? Now, turn forwards one page or so to Samaria. And what do we find there? Well, the Samaritans are the opposite. They don't get to see any signs at all. Just one woman whose life is wonderfully turned upside down by an encounter with Jesus. And what does John say about them in verse 39? Many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And on to verse 41, many more believed because of Jesus' word. The Samaritans based their faith on something entirely different, didn't they? And so the contrast in our passage isn't really between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews in Galilee. The contrast is between Jesus' own people, now that he's returned into his homeland, and what he found from the lost and the unloved of Samaria. We're back in Cana of Galilee where this whole section began, and it's as if John is challenging his readers, these Greek-speaking Jewish believers. He's telling them Jesus was accepted in Samaria, and he was rejected in Israel, and none of it took him by surprise. He really is the savior of the world, all kinds of people, but nobody gets to presume on him. What was it that the woman at the well was searching for in her shame and thirst and need? Well, she was searching for a bridegroom. And the wonderful truth of the last two weeks is that Jesus didn't simply come offering stuff to his people. He didn't come simply offering eternal life or forgiveness or satisfaction or any of that. No, he came to offer himself through his spirit, not just benefits, but a bridegroom, which turned out to be exactly what the Samaritans were looking for. What does he find, though? Back in his homeland, it is exactly the opposite, isn't it? There is huge interest in the blessings, but not much interest in him. People love the signs, but not the one they point to. It is precisely the kind of welcome that Jesus mistrusted. You see, he didn't get it wrong. He knows what is in all men, and the people in Galilee turn out to be every bit as superficial as he suspected, every bit as superficial and selfish as we are prone to be, which is what makes this such a profoundly beautiful story. Jesus came here knowing precisely what he'd find, verse 44, but he wasn't looking for honor. He was seeking his bride to give himself just like he was in Samaria, even though that bride is only interested in what he can give, like a kind of spiritual gold digger. And then to illustrate the point, we're shown the story of one desperate man. His title implies that he's some kind of royal official, a senior advisor to King Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. And in verse 47, we're told that he too has heard that Jesus has come back from Judea. So he too has heard all about the miraculous signs. And do you see how he's here as a perfect representative of everything that is wrong in Galilee? 
The whole town is summed up in this one official. Here is a man who would never have been interested in Jesus if it wasn't for the fact that he loved his little boy and there was nothing he could do for him. But you see, loads of us are like that, aren't we? Loads of us are willing to ask for miracles when we're desperate. Just chat to an oncologist about the diets and the supplements that we'll swear by and the things we'll spend our money on when there's nothing else that we can do. Chat to a Christian teenager who never prays in such a heartfelt way as they pray around exam time. You do not have to be a believer to believe that Jesus can work miracles for you. You meet people like this guy all the time, and frankly, who wouldn't be if that was their little boy on the brink of death? But Jesus meets his plea with words that sound shockingly harsh to us, doesn't he? Because he is interested in giving this man something much more wonderful than he's dared to ask for. Notice, though, the rebuke in verse 48 isn't just aimed at him. It's a plural. It's aimed at everyone like him. The kind of belief you lot are interested in is a belief in what I can give you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will never be interested in having me because you are all about the benefits and not the bridegroom. Now remember, Jesus has given all sorts of wonderful signs already in this book. He's going to give us plenty more. There is a sincere way of making use of those signs, but his miracles are nothing on their own. The whole reason John insists on calling them signs is that they're about pointing to someone. It's the content of the sign that matters. And so even in this heartbreaking situation with a desperate man, Jesus has to do the loving thing because no amount of miracle working is going to benefit people like this. They will always demand more proof, more stuff, more blessings, and keep the giver at arm's length. Herman Ridderboss puts it like this, Jesus places himself between the father and his child. It's true, isn't it? And I think we need to pause and recognize what a merciful thing that is. I wonder what those things might be in our life that Jesus has to place himself in front of sometimes. Our kids' education, our dream career, the perfect-looking life, when push comes to shove, is it Jesus we want? Or is he a kind of magic charm to get us those other things? He will not have a gold digger for his bride with no true love or trust for him. And yet he's come all this way for a town full of superficial believers who are exactly like that. The strangest so in the Bible when we are at our most superficial and selfish, Jesus gives himself. Clearly, he is full of compassion for this man, even as he rebukes him. Which brings us to number two, the kindest no 
in the Bible, verses 49 to 54, when life is at its most real and raw, Jesus gives his word. You can sense the desperation by verse 49, can't you? Put your little boy on that deathbed and feel the sheer hopelessness and then read this story. And yet I wonder if I would have had this man's humility under that sort of pressure. Here is a big shot official who has just taken a public rebuke from Jesus in a moment of terrible crisis. How would I react if God had said no like that to my prayers? And yet rather than fly off the handle in his self-importance, no, he carries on simply begging for the life of his child. Come down, sir, before he dies. Now, it's a journey of about 16 miles from Cana down towards Capernaum at sea level. And notice, because he sees Jesus as a sort of prophet or miracle worker, the assumption is that he has to be physically there, down in Capernaum, to be any use. And so three times we get that repeated phrase, come down. And yet Jesus has come down quite far enough already. He will not be summoned. And so his answer is a no. Don't mistake verse 50. He does not give this man what he asks for. But it is the most extraordinarily kind no ever spoken. Because in that one response, Jesus doesn't just save the life of the boy. He saves the life of his father and every soul in that household. That is the real miracle taking place in this passage. Jesus takes this superficial Galilean with a belief based on nothing more than what he can get, and he works the real thing into his heart. And he does it by sending him away with absolutely nothing but a promise. Go, your son lives. That moment is the critical test, isn't it? No sign, no token, just a bare word from the mouth of God. Will that be enough? I don't know if there was something uniquely dysfunctional about my family growing up, but quite regularly, I think we'd be in a restaurant or at the barber's, and the time would come to pay, and my dad would realize he'd forgotten his wallet. And perhaps it was the part of the world we grew up in, but they would always want some sort of token, some tangible sign that you were good for your promise. You would honor the bill. Sometimes my dad would leave his watch behind and he'd get it back when he returned with the cash. Sometimes he had to leave actual people as a security. We would all have to sit there at the table, kind of awkward, embarrassed, until he arrives. And that is what this guy wants, isn't it? He wants the miracle worker himself to come with him. Think how embarrassing it would be to walk all the way to Capernaum into the house of a dying boy and wave your arms in the air mysteriously and then just kind of watch him slip away and be exposed as a charlatan. And so he wants the security of Jesus' presence right there with him to base his trust on but he is not going to get it. Jesus has spoken. 
And now he's forced to make a call on the spot. He has a kind of Galilean faith based on nothing more than what Jesus can show. Will he trust like a Samaritan who takes Jesus at his word? Will he receive the bridegroom himself and trust him? Sign faith or person faith? And the contrast is very clear and deliberate, isn't it? Verse 50, the man believed the words that Jesus had spoken to him and went on his way. In fact, the thing we're told about four times is what Jesus said to him. There is nothing quite so indicative of a person themselves than the words they speak. So if it's the bridegroom we want, what will we do with his words? That was a thought that was trailed right back when Jesus was introduced to us as the bridegroom. It's his voice that makes his friend rejoice. You remember that? And so John is saying to us, Believing in Jesus' miracles isn't enough. It's Jesus himself that we have to receive, whoever we are, Samaritan or Jew. True faith is based on nothing more than his bare, trustworthy, life-giving words. The signs might confirm it for us, but even then, you and I, we get nothing more than this man got, do we? We don't get to see those miracles for ourselves. All we get is John's words, John's testimony about them. Bare words inspired from the mouth of God. And will it be enough for us to base base our faith on? We're being asked the very same question as him in this passage, aren't we? Will we look away from the spectacular signs and focus our hope on the one they point to. You see, we need a faith that will carry us through when life is this real and this raw for us. When we are lying weak on our deathbeds, or worse still, sitting hopeless at the side of a child's deathbed, and there is nothing at all to see, nothing hopeful, only his promises to cherish. One day, those promises will be all you have to go on, just like this man. So how firm a basis of faith is the word Jesus has given you? Surely that is what John wants to drive into our hearts here. Jesus speaks four words. Go, your son lives. And at the seventh hour, the moment he speaks that final word, Zay, he lives. Death unravels in a small town far away. Nobody in Capernaum could even hear the words that Jesus spoke. But one little boy's frail body responds to the voice of his maker. And in an instant, the fluid drains from his lungs and the pallor drains from his lips, and the tears drain from his mother's eyes, and the servants drop whatever's in their hands and start running to Cana to share the news with their master. And that is the voice 
your faith is based on. Jesus speaks life three times. We get that word. Two simultaneous miracles, gifts of life, and both of them invisible. No showy signs. A boy far away who nobody could see and the hearts of a whole family just as buried and far away from him in every sense. And yet Jesus speaks life into them, verse 53, because he is the only savior of the superficial. You see, Jesus has come down farther than anyone has realized, hasn't he? It is astonishing condescension. He comes to a town where he knows that nobody cares. He saves a man's son who has no other interest in him at all. He overlooks all the presumption. He overlooks the presumption that he can only work if he's physically there, that he's nothing more than a magician. He overlooks the presumption that he's got to be there on time, that if this boy is lost to death, then he's lost to Jesus. And most wonderful of all, he does all of that for a man who doesn't even believe in him yet, to challenge him with the kindest no in the Bible. Because as someone put it, he doesn't just want to give a son back to his father. He wants to give himself to them both. Grace upon grace upon grace. And I think there is one more wonderful way that John is showing us the same beautiful thing. Here's how deeply we can trust his words. Jesus does all of that conscious of exactly what it will cost him. Look at all the attention that John gives us to the precise hour that this little boy is snatched away from death. The seventh hour. He says it again and again and again. In a book where already Jesus has been counting us down towards the great hour right from the very first sign in this very same town. He met that Samaritan woman at the sixth hour, high noon, sitting by a well, and he told her about an hour to come, a seventh hour, when everything would change. Later on, Jesus is led to the cross at the sixth hour, high noon, and we saw echoes of that seventh hour when he cries out in thirst, for his needy bride, he took her place, covered her shame. Is it reading too much to see the same echoes here? There is a seventh hour to come in this story, an hour of new creation, where Jesus will pay for every life he delivers here. And so he doesn't simply make empty promises. He will win their souls whatever the cost. And that is the word that we have based our hope on. A savior who is astonishingly kind and whose word is life and whose every promise can bear the weight of our souls. So will it be enough? Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that it is you whose kindness and firmness 
and wonderful, wonderful grace we've just seen, who holds the power over death and hell itself in your hands. Thank you that our hope is based on the most trustworthy, certain thing in the universe, your word. Thank you that in your faithfulness, you went all the way to the cross so that we can know there is power and life in your promises. So help us, we pray, to receive you and trust you and love you. To the praise of your grace. Amen.